Welcome to the Vine. So glad you guys are here today. I'm Zach. If you're new here, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to gather with you every week, uh, today especially. A couple things right off the bat, and then we'll get into our text, and I'll have Julie come up and read it. Um, So first of all, we have our annual meeting today. And I know what a lot of you are thinking when you hear the, the words church annual meeting. What are you thinking? You're thinking thumbs down. <laughs> lame. But you know what? It's not going to be lame. You know why? Because we're going to have ice cream. <laughs> so my kids will be there. And they're going to be dialed in. And I'm going to quiz them on the math and the numbers from Stan in terms of the budget. And if they're not dialed in, no ice cream. You guys ready? Okay. So Stan will have a quiz after... After the meeting. Anyway, we have ice cream, we got childcare, we got some testimonies. You know, we want the annual meeting to be more than just, hey, here's some information, but a time when we gather and, and get renewed in our vision and get reminded about who God has called us to be. And so that's what we'll be doing at three o'clock today. If you're not a member of the Vine Church, um, you're welcome to come. It'd actually be a great place to learn about who we are and about our culture and the things we value. Uh, so if you want to just come and listen in and you're not a member, uh, feel free to do that. If you are a member, we'd really love for you to make it a priority, okay? Um, so please come if you can. Let me answer uh, a question, too, that, that I think um, we, we get a lot and we probably should talk about publicly more often. So today's annual meeting day, so this is good to talk about it today. You know, we have a lot of new people at the Vine. And ever since we planted the church seven years ago, there's been a bit of a revolving door I think not because of negative things, but because in general, Madison is a bit of a revolving door with industries like Epic and with the university. So a lot of grad students, a lot of young people will come to Epic and then move away and get a different job. Um, We just have lots of people coming and going. And so we have a lot of people just checking out the vine. And I know there's a lot of new people here this morning. And so I just want to answer the question, why come to the vine? Why come to the vine? It's easy I think when, you, when you're checking out a new church, the first question can easily be, so what does this church have to offer me? Okay? What does this church have to offer? And that's not a horrible question. But it can be dangerous if that's the only question or that's the primary question. Okay? It can cause us to kind of lean in the wrong direction when how we think about viewing a church or what church do I want to land at. Okay? Um, So I want to maybe reframe the question, and if you're considering the vine this morning, or maybe some of you in this room aren't going to be in this room two years from now. That's most likely the case with a lot of you in this room, uh, because you're going to move away because of a different job, and you're going to need to find a new church. So how do you think about where I want to land for me personally or for my family? I want to challenge you that, that your primary question should not be, what's in it for me? The primary question should not be, what does this church have to offer, okay? But rather, listen to this, is this the kind of family of God that I want to be in relationship with, okay? So that's different than what do do they have to offer me, but no, thinking communally. Are these the kind of people, is this the kind of leadership I want to be in relationship with, okay? With, 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 With a purpose, for the sake of joining them and serving on the mission God has given them or us, okay? You feel the difference between what's this church have to offer me 
And do I want to be in relationship with these people based on the vision and mission that God has given them? Okay? See, the mindset you want is, do I resonate with this church's vision? Do I desire to be a part of a community of servants to fulfill that vision? Do I desire to do whatever I can to see the mission and vision move forward in Madison and beyond? That's different than what does this church have to offer me? Now, if, if what I'm looking for is solid biblical teaching or a, a, a next generation kids ministry that's solid or, or whatever, and that's not all bad. Okay, that's not, those aren't bad questions to ask. But if it just stays in terms of what are they offering me and doesn't go to what are, what are we trying to accomplish as a whole and how do I fit into that whole? Am I excited about fitting into that whole? Do I see my place really resonating with who these people are and who they're striving to be? That's different. That's different. One, the first question leans us towards more selfishness. And the second question can help us lean towards selflessness. And we want to challenge you, especially if you're new and you're checking out the Vine or not or some other church. Just ask yourself, um, is this the kind of place, do I resonate with who they are and who they're trying to be? Not perfectly, but who they are and who they're trying to be. And does my heart beat a little faster when they talk about making disciples and planting churches here in Madison and in North Africa and Ecuador and being a community that that has something to say. I want to, I want to share my faith. And I want to live a life that matches what I'm saying. Because that's who we are. That's the essence of who we are. Okay? Um, so we know that when a community is centered around being selfless, that's where really church starts to be beautiful. Why? Because the essence of the gospel is selflessness. Not selfishness. It's selflessness. And not selfishness. Okay? That's how God relates to us. And so we want to relate to one another as a church family like that. Okay? More to say? That's enough for now. Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And Julie's going to read it here for us. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For whoever, excuse me, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to, pro- to fulfill his promise, as some count slowless, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, receive, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Thanks, Julie. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you so much for how you have promised to um, inhabit the praises of your people. You've promised that when we open your word, it's a light to our path. Lord, you promise that when we receive your word with faith and joy, it blesses us. And so may you find um, soft soil this morning where the roots of your word can go down deep. Um, Would you help us? Lord, this text is hard at times for us. Um, And would you help us? We want to have soft hearts, eyes that, that can see, ears that can hear. Would you help me say what you would have me say? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So let me just start this morning by telling you the big idea for today. These ten verses, okay? Peter is writing to an ancient church that is being tempted by false teaching. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you're aware of this, okay? Peter is addressing false teachers that are poisoning or seeking to poison this early church 2,000 years ago, okay? And one of the main aspects of this false teaching— is that there's going to be no second coming of Jesus. There will be no final judgment. There will be no summing up all things in the end and the balancing of the scales, ultimately all wrongs being being righted. That's not going to happen. That's what they were saying. That's what these false teachers were saying. And in Peter's text that Julie just read, he's going to kind of really in detail address this false teaching and refute this false teaching. Okay? Here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that these false teachers do three things. They forget God's power, they forget God's past, and they forget God's patience. All right? Any preacher that can't do alliteration is worthless, all right? So I'm trying to prove my worth to you this morning, all right? Three Ps, all right? Power, God's power, God's past, and God's patience, all right? We'll get to those three in a second. We got to do a little intro work, all right? So let's look at verse one that kind of sets the stage. Now, this is the second letter, he says, that I'm writing to you, first and second Peter. Beloved, and in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. So I want you to think about some things by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So look at verse 1 and the word at the end, reminder. And then he jumps four words later to the word remember. See it there in verse 1 and 2? This is intentional. What is Peter trying to do? He's trying to stir these folks up to not be forgetful. We're so prone to spiritual amnesia. We're so prone to spiritual Alzheimer's disease. We forget all the time. We th- you would think that if you just tell us once, we'd remember, especially these grand truths about God, but we don't. Sinful human nature just causes us to slide and lean towards forgetfulness over and over again. Can you not relate to that? I relate to that. And so Peter's writing to them and saying, don't forget, don't forget, remember, remember, remember. Don't be lured in by the false promises of the world. Remember God's promises, all right? So Peter's saying, again, this is a wake-up call. I I want to wake you guys up. 
to, be re- to, to, to not forget and to be those that remember. But it's not just remembrance in the abstract. It's not just remembrance in general. He has a specific target that he's shooting at, okay? This is what he's got in mind. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. I'm going to stir you up your sincere mind by way of reminder, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So in the light of the context of false teachers who are saying no second coming, no final judgment, don't worry about it, live however you want, Peter's saying that's not true. The Bible does not teach that. Remember, you have the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say? What did the prophet say? Well, he maybe has something in mind, like Malachi chapter 4. Many, many centuries before this, Malachi's talking about future judgment. Malachi's talking about second coming, okay? Look at what Malachi says. Look on the screens here. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So look at verse 2 when Peter says the predictions of the holy prophets. Maybe he's got Malachi 4 in mind. The Old Testament talked about this. The Old Testament talked about this. Remember, remember, remember. And then in verse 2 where it says, the commandment of the Lord and Savior. So what's this all about? What's the commandment of Jesus in reference to his second coming? That's a little harder. So we don't really know for sure, right? But it could be something like this, because there are commandments from Jesus in reference to his second coming. Look uh, Look on the screen here, Matthew 24. This is Jesus talking. And this could be what Peter has in mind here in verse 2. P- Jesus says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. So here's the commandment. Therefore, you also must be ready. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So be ready. Be ready. So what's, what's Peter getting at here? He's saying, you got the Old Testament. You got Jesus. This is the Bible, okay? And the Bible clearly says that there will be a second coming, that there will be final judgment. And then he turns in verse 3, and he just sums up what these false teachers were saying, okay? So he's going to sum it up, and then he's going to refute it. All right, so let's look at the summary. Verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So let's stop right there. Let's look at verse 3, okay? And I want you to key in on one word. This false teaching is fueled by something. This false teaching is fueled by what? Look at the end of verse 3. 
<clears throat> end of verse 3, their own sinful desires. Okay? So what does that mean? Notice that he doesn't write, these guys are following their own sinful intellect, their own sinful way of thinking. He's saying, very intentionally, these false teachers are teaching what they teach because of what? Because of sinful desire. So here's the point for those guys, and I think for us. Our desire, our desires do not follow our intellect. Okay? Another way to say it is that we think what we think because we want what we want not the other way around. So let me give you an example that displays how irrational I can be, okay? I've been in credit card debt before, okay? Credit card debt is not rational. Um, I don't claim to be a math genius, but any, even a dummy like me who hates math can figure out that 20% interest is probably not a good choice, right? But I, I still did it. Well, why did I do it? Because of desire. Because I wanted something. Right? Logically, intellectually, you look at 20% interest and go, that makes no sense. Why would you do that? It's a horrible financial decision. Right, but, but I want this over here. So I can rationalize away very, very easily a, a bad decision for the sake of something I want. My desire rules my thinking, not the other way around. And there's a thousand other examples you could come up with, Right? We think what we think because we want what we want. Our desires don't follow our intellect. Our, our, our intellect is ruled by our desires. And Peter's saying the same thing when it comes to these false teachers. See, this false teaching is not just some intellectual pursuit. That's not the way the human heart works. That's not what the Bible says. See, the Bible assumes that our desires can convince our minds of anything. Uh, let's take one more theological. If I don't want God as my authority, and I look to the heavens and I go, this can't just be an accident. How could this be just an accident? But at the same time, I feel tension then because I don't want some supreme authority. Why? Because I want to be my own authority. That feels way more safe, feels way more in control. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to answer to anybody, right? I can be completely autonomous. So what I do is I look to the heavens and I go, there's got to be a God there, but then I realize my desires. My desires don't want that because I want to do whatever I want. So then what do I do? Well, what I do is I come up with an excuse. Like, well, there's just not enough evidence. I just don't buy all this, this God stuff. Like, if he were really real, he would just come out and say it. I mean, he would write it in the sky. Like, he hasn't done that. There's not enough proof. And these false teachers are doing something similar. They're coming up with some intellectual theological thing. Why? Because, like we learned last week, what is their ultimate desire? Their ultimate desire, like we learned last week, is sex and money. And so what do they do? They create a theology that says there's no final judgment. There's no one holding you to account. Jesus isn't coming back. Don't worry about it. Get, what, get yours while you can now. What's the problem? They have ruling desires. That's why they have this teaching. And so no, no, no second coming of Jesus. No future judgment. Do whatever you want. But just know this. In, in spite of what a post-enlightenment society will tell you about your rationality, we're far less rational than we think. These false teachers are not rational. They're ruled by desires. 
And, and our human heart works the exact same way. So we need to be on guard lest we're sucked in to false teaching. Because false teaching oftentimes appeals to our desires. Let's look at the essence of their teaching. Verse 4, Peter's just summing up what they're saying. And he quotes them, in essence, saying this. Here's what they say. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? And why do they say that? Here's why. Because they believe something about creation. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So here's what the false teachers were saying. If you look at the world, there's a lot of consistency, right? The sun comes up, the sun goes down. Over and over and over again. It's pretty consistent. The seasons change. Summer, fall, winter, spring, over and over again. They're they're saying, look at the world. All things are continuing as they were, right? There's no disruption in creation. Life goes on very predictably. So if if that's the case, why would you think that there's going to come a point in history where all that will be disrupted and Jesus is going to return and have this massive scene of judgment that disrupts the created order. Why would you think that? Look at how consistent creation is. Why? That's just foolishness. That's just a fairy tale. Don't believe that. That's what they're saying. It would be like a child having a father go away on a long business trip. But he promises his son or his daughter that he's coming back. But the problem is son or daughter gets very used to life without him in his absence. That son or daughter finds a consistency with just one parent. And then in addition, one of his friends comes along and says, your dad said he was going to return, but look at how long it's been. It's been month after month, and he said he's coming back, but why would you think that? Consistency in your life says that he's not coming back. This is just the way things are. Look at your life, day after day after day. No dad. So why do you think you're going to have a dad return to you? But just because dad has been gone a long time, does that mean by definition that he won't be coming back for sure? See, if your dad is trustworthy and if he loves you and he said he's coming back, then you would have every reason to believe that no matter how long, he will be coming back. And Peter wants this first audience and us to feel that God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Has not Jesus proven that he's trustworthy? So that's what these guys are saying. Look at creation. It's consistent. There's no disruptions. So why would you think there's going to be some future disruption of judgment? And here's Peter's refutation. Number one, guys, you forget God's power in creation. Number two, you forget God's past points to his future. And number three, you forget God's patience. God's power, God's past, and God's patience. Let's look at how he does this. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, these false teachers, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So right off the bat, Peter's saying this to these guys. You're missing something vital about God. You're overlooking some vital information. It's this. God is the author of creation. He's not the slave of creation. God is in no way subservient to the natural order that you see in creation. Why? Well, what does verse 5 says? Verse 5 says, let's look at verse 5 on the screen there, Chris. Verse 5 says that he's the one that made it by his word. See it? By the word of God, all the heavens existed long ago. Creation existed by God's word. He has the power to create simply with a word. So then it follows that he's also got the power to disrupt it as he sees fit. God is not a slave to the natural order. God is not a slave to things happening over and over and over again. He's the one that ordained it so he can disrupt it as he sees fit. I mean, listen to what Hebrew says. It'll be on the screen. This is one of my favorite verses about who Jesus is. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So there's a connection to our text. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And here's the, here's the punchline for today. And he upholds the universe by his word, by the word of his power. God is not a slave to the repetitive nature of creation. He's the one that did it, and he's the one that upholds it by the word of his power. That's all God needs. That's all Jesus needs is a word. He can do whatever he wants. He created once by a word. I mean, think of the power of that. He speaks, and it is. He doesn't have to work. He doesn't have to go to school to get training. He just speaks, and it is. That's Peter's point here. God is pow more powerful than you think, false teachers. All he needs is a word. All he needs is a word. Second, you forget God's past. You forget God's past and how it points to the future. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So God is powerful in creation, not a slave to creation, the repetitive nature of creation. And, verse 6, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now what's he talking about here? He's saying, guys, you forget that God already did it once. Remember Noah? And the state of the world and the judgment that fell by God's word coming and judging all of the world with a deluge of water. What is, it, what is he doing here? He's saying, guys, you forget that God already did it once. He can do it again. God already did it once. He can do it again. Right? God's past. You forget God's past. It points to the future. It's just a matter of time. And then finally, God's power, God's past, and then God's patience. He's saying to the false teachers, you guys don't understand the patience of God. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact. It's good for them to hear. It's good for us to hear. Don't overlook this. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But what? what? What is he? He is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what's, what was Peter saying here? He's saying God has a different tape measure. God does not measure things like we do. False teachers, you don't understand how God relates to time, okay? False teachers are saying that since things are not happening very fast, or as fast as they think they should, that they won't ever happen. And Peter's saying, you don't know God. You don't know his patience. You don't know his love. You don't know his desire for people to come to know him and respond to the call to repentance and faith. He's saying to these guys, you need a reorientation of your understanding of who God is. He's powerful. He's got a past that points to his future, and he's so patient. You need a new emphasis. It's not that God is slow. It's that God is patient. It's not that God is slow. It's that God is patient. There's a huge difference. Think about it like this. Silly illustration, but just go with it. Imagine Usain Bolt, fastest guy in the world, right? He's in a 200-meter dash with a bunch of three-year-olds, okay? Tim versus the three-year-olds, all right? And he doesn't want to just crush these kids and have them melt down. So what does he do? He's just going to start off real, real slow, just a little shuffle, right? Now, if he's shuffling along and, and being not, like, super aggressive to just crush these kids in a race, you still wouldn't say that Usain Bolt is slow, would you? You'd never say that. You wouldn't assume that he couldn't win at any moment. What would you say? You would say that he's being mercifully patient, right? Just because he's, he's choosing not to win right away doesn't mean he's slow. He's making a choice based on a patient desire. Him not winning right away has nothing to do with his ability. It has to do with his character. You feel that? That's what Peter's saying here. He's saying, guys, do not interpret slowness as inability. Don't interpret slowness as inability. Here's how you interpret slowness. Interpret slowness as loving kindness. Interpret slowness as loving kindness. Look at verse 9. But is patient toward you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you. Reflect on that for a moment. God is patient. Is that not one of the sweetest things you ever heard? I mean, can you imagine if the Bible said, God, our Father, is really impatient? That's a scary universe to live in. That's not the, li- the universe that a Christian lives in because the Bible teaches us that God is is patient. He's so patient. He doesn't measure time like we do. He is patient. Now listen. Think about this. A lot of times I think God's patience is hard for us. 
Obviously, it was hard for these false teachers because they rejected it. It's hard for us, too. When is it hard? It's hard when we long for justice in light of the injustice of the world and the injustice that we experience. That's when God's patience is hard for us. Why? Because it's like, God, why don't you hurry up and do something about what's going on here to me? Right? God, your patience is really, really hard for me because I want justice. I'm hurting, and I want it now. Lord, what is going on? And you can read the Psalms. The Bible has a category for those emotions, okay? You need to be careful with those emotions. But here's the other thing. What about when we cause other people's harm? Not harm against us, but when we cause other people's harm. See, maybe when we cause other people's harm, we should reflect more on the wonder of how patient God is with us. Rather than being tempted to shake our fist at God when, we, when we're harmed and say, God, get down here and deal with this, will you? Like, where, where are you at? See, see, which is it? This is the hard part of the Christian life. Which is it? See, we can't have it both ways. Is it immediate justice or, or patient justice? See, we can't have God on a little, on a little justice leash, Right? where we think we can reel him in or give him slack based on our fallen notions of justice. See, see, if we're the ones that need to be judged because of our sin, then we reel in that justice leash and say, no, 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 tight leash, no, no justice, God, just mercy, thanks. Just bring it on in tight here. But if we're harmed, and we'll drop that leash altogether, have at it, Right? But here's the problem. God will not be on our leash. It's almost blasphemous to talk that way. The point is this. We can't have it both ways. Wanting a God who judges all things all the time immediately and a God who is patient and gives much time for repentance. And Peter's point for his first audience and us is that God is patient and we should embrace that. Let's rejoice in God's patience. You should sing loud on a Sunday morning because of God's patience with us. He doesn't rush to final judgment, right? Isn't that good news for you, like maybe before you became a Christian? Or maybe that should, should, should just melt your heart this morning if you're not a Christian? That God doesn't have an itchy trigger finger, right? God is patient. With us. That should fall on our ears this morning with comfort and joy and thankfulness. Verse 9, he is patient towards you. But there's still verse 10. Just because God doesn't have an itchy trigger finger doesn't mean that he's incapable or unwilling to fulfill the essence of his nature. God is love, and God is justice. God is patient, God is just. Just like Usain Bolt running a, running a race against three-year-olds, just because he's choosing to let them get ahead of him for a few 
100 meters maybe doesn't mean that Usain's not going to win the race. God is just, and his justice will be seen in the second coming of Jesus for all to see. In Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. There will be no doubting. There will be no questioning. All mouths will be closed, and all will be made clear. It's not if, it's when. And that's what verse 10 says. Verse 10 should be a comfort for those who long for God's justice. Because there's a promise here. It's coming. It will happen. We've got to wait. And it's so hard in the waiting room. I hate the waiting room. But faith lives in the, in the waiting room. And, and the faith that pleases God lives in the waiting room. If you're in the waiting room, verse 10 is your verse. There is a day coming. But also, it's a comfort, but also a warning. We can't take his patience for granted. If you have the perspective that God likes to forgive and I like to sin, good combination, verse 10 should be a warning. We cannot take his patience for granted. Look at verse 10. So he's patient, yes, and a thousand years like a day, day like a thousand years. But verse 10 comes and he says, but, like, make no mistake, there's more to be said here, but... The day of the Lord will come. It's not patience forever. It's going to come like a thief, meaning when you, when you least expect it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Did you hear that? The day of the Lord will come. Contrary to these false teachers, the false teachers are wrong. There will be a day of judgment, and on that day, look at what verse 10 says. The works that are done will be exposed. Like how you live does matter. There will be a day of reckoning. Don't believe the false teachers. Everything will be exposed. All things will be seen for how they really are. No faking, no bartering, no pretense. All laid bare. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how successful in in your job you are. Doesn't matter how dominant you were in culture, how popular you were, how many followers on social media. None of that will matter. The only thing that will matter will be this. Are you choosing to stand before God on your own? Or does Jesus stand with you as your perfect substitute? having bore the wrath of God for you already on the cross so it won't ever be poured out again on you. Which is it? Those are the only options on that day. Now, we don't talk about verses like this very much, right? This is not very comfortable. Final judgment, verse 7, fire. Like sometimes Christians get a really bad rap. And maybe it's not a bad rap. Maybe it's the truth. Some of you were raised in churches where the fires of judgment were every Sunday. And so I'm up here talking about it again, and you've got some some baggage, right? At the Vine, we just want to say what the Bible says. And we're not trying to avoid anything. We're not trying to be out of balance. We're walking through 2 Peter, and this is what it has for us. And I think for some of us, this can instill some fear. It's a heavy language. But here's the good news. You don't have to fear being exposed on the day of judgment if 
Jesus is your covering, if Jesus is your perfect righteousness, if Jesus is your advocate. And the Bible is clear, if you don't have Jesus as the one you're ultimately believing in, trusting in, casting yourself upon for the forgiveness of your sins, for your right standing before God, the prospect of a second coming of Jesus a second time for the sake of judgment is kind of scary, and it should be, but it doesn't have to be. This is why Jesus came, right? Listen to what he said. Let this fall on you with fresh ears this morning. For God so loved the world, so God loves the world, that he did what? He gave his only son. So it's a gift. You don't have to, you have to pay for it. You don't have to clean yourself up for it. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So you don't have to fear final judgment. You don't have to fear verse 10. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus' first coming wasn't a, a, a mission of condemnation. It's a mission of saving. Why did he come? But in order that the world might be saved through him. So do you need saving? But whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this isn't popular. There was a scene on Capitol Hill recently that totally fleshed this out. That I was reading the news. People don't like the language of condemnation. And I get that. But the Bible's clear. There is a clear dividing line between Jesus and life in him. And those that do not have life in him do stand condemned. That's just what Jesus said right here. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. So there is condemnation for those who don't know Jesus. But Jesus, he doesn't blush. The Bible doesn't blush, but it doesn't have to be condemnation. And that's why Jesus came. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. And so again, are you willing to be saved? Do you see your need to be saved? If yes, the day of judgment, verse 10 here, doesn't have to be fearful at all. Because all the judgment has already been absorbed. That's why Jesus came. That's what the cross is. God pouring out his wrath, not on us, but in himself, in Jesus, in our place. So you don't have to fear, verse 10. You don't have to fear the exposure of final judgment. In Jesus, with him as your trust and your treasure, there's nothing to hide. So that's good news this morning. Christian or not, you can become a Christian, and this doesn't have to be scary at all. And if you are already a Christian, man, rejoice. That day is coming, and, and you don't have to fear. So, in sum, false teachers are false. They speak lies. There will be a second coming. They forget God's power and creation. They forget God's past. That he's already done it once. He'll do it again. And they forget God's patience. There will be a day of judgment when all those who reject Jesus will bear the wrath of God all on their own. 
But that day doesn't have to be a day of fear. That's why Jesus came. God doesn't long for people to perish. Come to Jesus and experience the joy of knowing your condemnation has been taken away. That's Christianity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for your word. And may we live in light of it. Lord, would you help us? Apart from you, we can do nothing. You are the vine. We are the branches. We want to be vitally connected to you so that we can have life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.